Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like proper spelling of that, feel free to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, it will be available for you on the bottom of the screen that you will also be able to interact with from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every Every single weekday. Note as well, if you want to take advantage of that resource after hours, there'll be previous recordings streamed automatically, and you can also email us your questions as the broadcast unfolds. But you can join us live there as well. We'll have a countdown clock to when the next broadcast will be taking place in your respective time zone. If you're also interested in joining us on social media, YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe, you'll be given the advantage of being notified when we are going live. However, we have the disadvantage of being at their mercy. So if we aren't streaming for whatever reason, and usually for technical difficulties, if we're taken down or blocked, feel free to join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. Keep us in prayer, of course, in noting that the questions that we answer will be biblically relevant, and you can assist in that process, that the questions we receive, of course, will follow three standards, that they are sincere Bible questions. If you ask it in the form of a question, that will be, of course, helpful for us giving an answer. If you want questions about the Bible, note the substance of the answer needs to be about the Bible, not just to mention it in some vague general generality. And of course, sincere questions are ones where you want to hear the answer. If you can meet all of those criteria, we'll be happy to take time on the broadcast to address it. We'll also be discussing our rhetoric lesson for the week and other things, but before we tread boldly where even angels would fear to go, I want to start us off in a word of prayer, make sure God goes before and with us. Yeah, sure. Uh, Father, we love you. We're very grateful for everything that you're doing in our lives, and uh, we're thankful that you are sovereign and in control over everything happening in our world. Uh, we want to spend this time focusing on you, your truth, your word, and your goodness. Uh, allow us to be able to honor what you have spoken to us through your scripture, and I pray that everyone listening would be benefited by that. And in your name, amen. That is true. Now, to start us off and, I guess, continue in rhetoric, we've been discussing a lot of mistaken ways of thinking when it comes to how we talk to people. And in rhetoric, it's important to be able to not only collect your thoughts, but present them in a comprehensive manner. But when we're talking about these fallacies, the goal isn't to be able to point out errors in other people's thinking as much as it is to avoid errors in your own. So when we're talking about these fallacies, don't uh, get on your high horse and try to spot the fallacy whenever someone's talking with you. Make sure that you're thinking through how you are talking to people and whether or not you are avoiding these pitfalls. The one of which today is, of course, either going to be making the fallacy of the either-or fallacy 
or not. And of course, in a little bit of a play on words here, it's called the fallacy of the false dilemma in some circles, but the either or fallacy is usually the best way to spot it because it includes that word. And the way it's generally defined is simply this. You're making a comparison between two things as if those are the only two factors involved when the reality is you're either misrepresenting one of those factors or there's more than just those two factors involved. Since we want to, of course, make Scripture our guide through how we're speaking to people with God's heart as well as his mind, what would be an example in Scripture of that in action and how to avoid it for ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this is Matthew chapter 22 and verse 23. Uh, Jesus has just done the triumphal entry, and he is getting some blowback, basically. There are people who are challenging him. They don't really believe that he's the Messiah, and they want to tie him up in some of his beliefs and theology. So the Sadducees come at him, and the Sadducees were kind of the religious elite, the religious liberals of that day, and they thought that there was no such thing as the resurrection. They also didn't believe in the spiritual and things like that. But specifically, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They know that Jesus does, and so they're going to utilize the either-or fallacy to show him that the resurrection is ridiculous. So this is their argumentation. Uh, verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there, uh, now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring left to his wife, to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Okay, so this is the false problem, false dilemma fallacy, or the either-or fallacy, where they're saying either, either you can only have a law in which you only marry one person ever, right? You can never remarry or anything like that, or the resurrection is a ridiculous ideology because once you are raised from the dead and you've had multiple spouses in your lifetime, who do you marry when you get to heaven, right? That's the either-or fallacy. So either Jesus has to say, well, Actually, guys, the whole thing that Moses said about marrying widows after, you know, your, your brother's widow and trying to raise up a child in his name, that was all garbage. You shouldn't do that. And just if you're married to one person, you should never remarry, even if they die. He could have said that, or he could have said, no, you're right. I guess the resurrection's kind of stupid. That's the box that they were trying to put him in. And we actually get from later on in the chapter that no one else was able to answer this question. <laughs> the Pharisees had been going bat to bat with the Sadducees for some time. They were kind of rivals in the religious community, and they had not been able to get a sufficient answer to this question. Jesus is able to steer away from it. He's able to figure out that it is a false dilemma fallacy, and he's able to give a very successive answer to it. And so no, you can know something's a false dilemma, but if you address it, the two options that you're given in any way, you're trapped because you're playing on their terms. How does our Lord respond? Right. And before I get to resp his response, I'm going to give you guys some common examples of this. Uh, I'm going to give two examples from both political sides for a second, and then I'm going to give examples that I've seen in my times of counseling. So uh, very popular ones right now, we're talking about the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health decision being passed by, the, uh, being taken down by the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade being taken down by the Supreme Court. So a very common one today that you're going to hear, and I hear it all the time actually now, is, well, either you support women's health or 
you support the fact that they're going to have to be forced to carry these pregnancies and get possibly kill them, right? So ectopic pregnancies are being brought up all the time, as well as, you know, incidences of rape or incest, things like that. So the false dilemma in that situation would be you have to agree that women have the right to an abortion or you are going to have to allow, and by the way, an ectopic pre pregnancy is where the embryo, the, the embryo, the fertilized egg, is implanted in the fallopian tube as opposed to in the uterus. Which and is how often? Uh, very, very rare. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's incredibly rare. And it would result in the death of not only the embryo, but the woman. And the argument, of course, is much like with the rape or incest rule. If you allow for abortions in those scenarios, of course, that is not going to stop. So the issue in addressing that is not to engage with the two fallacies. It's to go back to, okay, let's pretend you're right. Does that change whether or not any other abortion is immoral? And, of course, they'll say, no, it has nothing to do with the whatever tube and so forth. So understand that point. We're avoiding the two options by saying there is a third. That's right. Uh, so on the right, you know, so that's kind of the left side of the aisle. On the right side of the aisle, someone might say, well, either you agree with the complete and total ban on abortion right now, or you support it. Right. So you see a lot of people on the right kind of even shooting their own a little bit on this, where they're, they're like, no, 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 the Supreme Court had to have said that abortion is not allowed in any circumstances whatsoever, and I'm not going to have any compromises or incrementalism here. You either support the ending of abortion right now, right this moment, or you don't, you're not pro-life at all. Right. That's the kind of either-or fallacy used in that way. So we're either put in a, crystal, a Christological utopia or... We continue in the state we were been in the last couple decades. Either or. That's right. That's the either or fallacy. Now, in marriage, I see this all the time. Uh, so, for instance, uh, let's say a husband wants his wife to support him in some sort of an endeavor. Let's say he wants to take a new job or he wants to move the family to a different state or a city or something like that, and the wife opposes it. So she might say, um, either you let our family stay in the position that they've been, or you don't care about us, or you don't love us. And then he might respond by saying, well, either you support me in this decision, or you never respected me, and you don't love me and care about my dreams. Right? This would be the false dilemma kind of premise, that I can't accept a reality in which you love and support me, however think my plan is stupid. And from the woman's perspective, she can't conceive of a world in which the husband wants to do this thing, even though you feel like it would be destructive to the family, and possibly he does love you, does care about what he's doing, and genuinely thinks it would be better for the family, right? You can't conceive of a reality in which both could be true at the same time, and so you get into the either-or fallacy. So the main thing that you want to set up in your mind, like Sean said, this is more about trying to avoid this mistake in your own reasoning than it is about pointing it out in other people's reasoning. So when I am categorizing or if I'm thinking about the motives of someone that I am talking to. I need to be very, very careful if I can only think of two options to pause and say, well, let me ask this person what they're thinking because perhaps maybe I don't see the full picture. 
maybe there is a third option that I'm not seeing or recognizing. Uh, I think about the play Hamlet, where Hamlet says to his friend Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. You know, perhaps there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your line of reasoning. You know, maybe just assume that you don't have all the information, ask questions, and you'll get better answers, which is what we've been trying to encourage you guys uh, from the beginning. Beyond that, try not to falsely characterize someone, right? So don't put your opponent into this kind of false dichotomy and assume motive or assume what they're thinking about. This is very similar to the straw man argumentation. So anything you want to say about that before we get into Jesus's answer? No, just note there is a right and a wrong way to talk to someone, and of course, setting them up to fail in one way or another is rarely effective communication. Now, right. obviously, there are situations where someone's cornered themselves on a bad idea, but it's not those times you insert the knife, it's that right. you show them, you're in a corner, let's get back onto the road. <laughs> yeah, let me show you this third option. So some people, by the way, you're, you're absolutely correct, some people put themselves into the false dilemma uh, fallacy, where mm -hmm. they're like, well, I can't possibly, and by the way, there there are many people on the fence about being pro-choice versus pro-life, and I've, I've talked to them, where they're like, well, I agree morally we should be pro-life, however, politically, I feel like we should be pro-choice because I don't want women to get uh, abortions in an unsavory environment that might cause them to die needlessly, and I also want to provide health care for women who do have pregnancies that could lead to their death, right? So they've put themselves in this either-or fallacy where they can't conceive of a world in which you can support the ban of abortion and still, utilizing the concept of double effect, allow for women's uh, particular procedures that would result in the death of the baby but the, saving the life of the mother, right? So they can't conceive of a third option, and so therefore they put themselves into that box. And like Sean said, you don't want to be like, well, you're an idiot, you know, like, you, you can't you see this? But instead say, hey, have you ever thought that maybe this could be a principle, right? Or maybe we could do it this way. Uh, I was talking to someone yesterday, and he kind of put himself in that box. He's like, well, either, either I move out and I lose all the equity in my house, or I stay here and just kind of bite the bullet and recognize that it's a bad decision. I'm like, okay, or you know, have you ever considered that maybe someone could rent out the property for you and you could maybe move in this direction, right? So I gave him a third option and helped him kind of think through it that way. Or so, what we see often on this broadcast, either I sinned in this way and am totally lost from God, mm -hmm. or I achieve sinless perfection. There is no other state before God. Mm -hmm. I'm either <laughs> free from sin or I'm totally depraved and incapable of saving myself from this sin. Either I'm totally released from this temptation or I give into it. Mm. That's the mindset. Absolutely. So, uh, and you could see, by the way, in this dilemma that they've brought up, that if the Pharisees weren't able to answer that question, it's possible. We don't have any historical evidence to back this up, but it is plausible that some of the Pharisees were like, huh. Maybe Moses was wrong. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't be allowing people to remarry after they are widowed. And so, then just for the sake of clarity to those listening, what was the challenge again before okay. we get Jesus' answer? Yeah. It has been a little bit since I actually gave the challenge. So uh, the Sadducees come up to—I'm just going to summarize their point. Sadducees come up to Jesus. They don't believe in a resurrection, and so they point out an Old Testament law in the book of—I believe it's from Deuteronomy, in which Moses had commanded the people that if someone dies being married to a wife— 
and not having children, that person's brother should marry her and then raise up that child in that person's name. So in other words, you name that person the name of your brother, and then the inheritance that would have gone to your brother then goes to that child. So their name is perpetuated. Yeah, so the they leverite law. That's right. So uh, they provide Jesus with a scenario in which there is a woman widowed six times, right, to seven different brothers. So she's, she marries, and she never produces an heir. And so their argumentation is, well, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? So their either-or fallacy is, again, either there is no resurrection because that's stupid, or Moses gave a bad law in encouraging widows to remarry. That's their principle here. So how does Jesus get out of that either-or fallacy? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. So he's just like, right off the bat, there is a third option. You guys are mistaken because you don't understand God's power, and you don't really understand the Scriptures very much either. Which was so, very personal. That very, very personal thing to say. So he's going to give the power of God thing, meaning he, this is Jesus actually giving a little bit of divine revelation here. He is giving a piece of information that was withheld from people in the Old Testament. Uh, to my knowledge, this is the first time that anyone's said something like this, an, an understanding of heaven. So he says... Uh, verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. So this is the third category. So he's like, either, so they're saying, either this is a bad law or there's no resurrection. Jesus is saying, no, the third option is there is a resurrection. However, we are not given in marriage in the resurrection. So this woman who would have been divorced, uh, who would have been widowed six times and married to a seventh brother would not be married to any of them because nobody is married in heaven. Right? That's his answer to their question, the third option that they weren't seeing. Now, what's his reasoning for saying that? Verse 31, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to, to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So this is an interesting development here, because Jesus seems to give the either-or fallacy. But what you see is sometimes either or is accurate, right? So there is a time where the either or uh, line of reasoning is not a fallacy, but it's actually an accurate line of reasoning. Like a true or false scenario. Either this is true or it's not. Well, there's a third option. They can both be true. <laughs> no. And a lot of people in our culture, I think it's a really good point, because a lot of people in our culture are looking for the secret third option when it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Either you're a man or a woman, or... Ooh. Perhaps you're non-binary, right? And that's that's kind of the idea of always looking for the third auction and never thinking in terms of, like you said, true or false or objective reality. So Jesus provides a statement basically saying, this is a genuine either-or proposition in which there is no middle ground. So he looks at it and he says, he quotes from the Old Testament where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now what Jesus is saying is, if there is no resurrection, and you guys are correct, that after we die, our consciousness goes into nothingness, and we just have no amount of existence after our death, then God misspoke. He should have said, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, because these guys are currently dead. When he says, I am the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, what he's saying is these people still have existence, and I am still their God. Right? I they still. physically died, and they're not dead now. That's so right. what happened in between, Mr. I don't believe resurrection? That's right. So Jesus's uh, either-or proposition goes like this. Either... 
there is a resurrection in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still have existence and consciousness, and they still relate to God as their God, or God misspoke. Yeah. Those are your only two options. And that is a genuine either-or proposition. They couldn't answer him. Why? Because there was no third option. Right? They couldn't come up with a third option because it didn't exist. So that's a very good way to kind of answer the question. Not only be careful, bring up the third proposition to say, okay, you're mistaken. And you have to call people out on this. You can't say, okay, you know, well, I'm, I'm uh, not this or that. You just say, no, you're just wrong. You're bringing up a false dilemma. It doesn't exist. Let me give you another possibility of how this could work. Um, another good one that just kind of came to my mind that I hear often, and again, I, I know you do too, either the Old Testament is wrong about God's nature or God is not an all-benevolent God but one who is into genocidal murder, right? Uh, and you could say, well, no, there, there's a third option, and that is that you are misreading the text of how God is treating the Canaanites and various other people groups throughout the Old Testament. And the right? definition of genocide. Right, and the definition of genocide, just simple things like the definitions of words. So it's very important to point out the fact that it is a fallacy before you give your third option. And then sometimes if you're quick enough on your feet, you could then turn this against them, right? You could then put them in a position where you're showing them that they really are holding to a false dichotomy that doesn't actually exist to point out the ridiculousness of their uh, perspective. So a good example of that would be, again, if someone brings up like either you believe, let's say I'm talking to a Muslim and they say that to me, they're like, well, either you believe that the God of the Old Testament is totally into this kind of genocide, or you believe that the God of the Old Testament is a completely different God than the one that we serve in the New Testament. Or and if they actually know their Quran, they can say, we love Jesus, why don't you love Muhammad? Right. As if Muhammad and Jesus are comparable figures in both of our worldviews. Right, right. And this is one that I, I actually told my friend who was an imam at the mosque up at the U of A when he, because he actually did give me this kind of false, false dilemma. And I said, well, okay, well, either you believe in a God that is okay with the nature of jihad of being like actual violent sub subjugation and forced conversion of people who don't accept Islam. The way it's been practiced for 14 centuries and is spelled out and modeled by their founders and every single figure into the last century. Continue. <laughs> or your perspective of reading the Quran from this ideology of the West that we should respect other people's views and values without trying to force them into any type of conversion is in direct competition with what your prophet said. So either you accept what your prophet said and you adhere to it and you stop kind of wiggle worming around and whitewashing Muhammad and making him out to be someone he wasn't, or you accept who he was and you admit the fact that Islam is a violent religion, right? Doesn't mean you have to do it, no, but you have to accept that your prophet did and he never gave an end date to when his, his teachings would stop taking effect on the people who followed him. So that would be a good example of that. You try to then take someone's logic and actually point out to them a real dilemma in their way of thinking. All right, so just to recap in dealing with false dilemmas, first understand what it is and why it's a problem. A false dilemma is it's either A or B when C is a possibility. If you are presented with a false dilemma, do not engage with A or B, point out C. And note, if you can't think on your feet, which is usually the case in these kind of stressful conversations, just give them time or give yourself time to think through before 
pointing out this either-or situation and ask, is there another either-or situation that conflicts with this? Because the either-or isn't the fallacy of the statement. The statement is either-or when it's not those two options. So note, there are things that have to be one or the other, but a fallacy is when you're presenting a situation that isn't necessarily that. The fault in the thinking is based on that misunderstanding, and the best way to answer those misunderstandings is to either rethink through one or both of those options or consider something other than them. But we want and to By the way, sure that, that can actually work. So uh, I'll give you an example from philosophy. So there was a very famous either or proposition uh, put up by, uh, gosh, I'm, I think it's the Euthyphro dilemma is what it's called. So either, uh, no, 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 it was Epicurus who made that, this one, that either God is all benevolent yeah. and all loving, and therefore he would want to do away with pain and suffering, or God is not powerful enough to do away with pain and suffering. So he is all benevolent and all loving, but he's just not powerful enough. Or he is powerful enough, but he's not benevolent enough to do it. Um, what was Epicurus's assumption on evil and good? It was based on whether or not we feel that's good right. or Pleasure. not. Pleasure. <laughs> exactly. So um, it was really interesting because for a long, long time in philosophy, Christian philosophers were trying to answer that question. They were like, well, no, 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 God can be all good and all loving and all powerful and still not deal with pain and suffering. So they would come up with the odysseys and things like that to try to answer the question. But the best answer was actually just from a philosopher who said, okay, you can't think of a way that God can be this all benevolent, all loving and all powerful and still allow for evil. But is it possible that there is a third option? And the more honest philosophers who were talking to him would say, well, I guess so, right? I guess it is plausible that there is a third option. He says, okay, well then, if it's even remotely plausible, then you cannot, because remember, their argumentation was there is no God because of this false dilemma. No, there's and, just no God that makes us feel good all the time, right. which is what you want. But in reality, we know a God who knows what suffering to allow and what to prevent. That's right. So as Sean said, uh, kind of like when we're going through these contradictions that uh, me and Sean have been going through for the last probably three or four months or something like that, uh, that would be, again, an either-or fallacy where you're trying to point out there could be another, uh, another possibility. And if you're talking to someone who's honest, you're having a good conversation with them and they bring you to that, that can be enough. You could say, well, okay, is it even possible that there's a third option? I can't think of one right now, but is it possible that there's a third option? And if there was, would that change your mind? So let us know if that's all clear and understand these apply to our hometown first. Make sure that in the way you speak, you don't set people up for two scenarios when a third one does exist. So with that said, let's go out to your questions. Uh, starting off, we have a prayer request for Caden, whose uh, friend died, and obviously he's having a natural reaction to that. So what would be some important things to keep in mind for someone, especially someone young, who's lost someone they love and respect in their life and keeping things in perspective? Uh, yeah, uh, very sorry to hear that. Um, I, I know the, the circumstances, and uh, yeah, I've been, I've been praying for Caden. I've been praying for, for your family. So essentially, we do live in a very blessed culture in which these things are very rare. And that's a blessing and a curse. And what I mean by that is if you lived in a culture like, um, you know, any type of third world culture today or basically any time in human history in the past, death of friends was just very, very common. And so people learned from a very young age how to cope with the idea of mortality, death, grieving, mourning, and the like. Because we live in a society that is so uh, 
diminished from that. We have so moved away from that idea of pain and suffering. Most people, when something like this happens to them, first of all, feel alienated. They feel like they can't talk to anyone because most of their classmates, most of the people their age can't really conceive of losing a loved one at that age. They, they don't know what mourning and grieving looks like. And many people in our culture, because they haven't ever taken the time to grieve or mourn, might give you some really bad answers, or they might try to just move you past grieving. They'll be like, hey, just don't think about it, or they're in a better place, don't worry about it, things are better for them now, uh, they're not suffering anymore. They'll give you kind of these soft soap answers that aren't very helpful. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to move you past the mourning process and make you feel kind of awkward about your sorrow. So the most important thing to understand is that sorrow and grief are very important things, if you're undergoing some sort of a loss like that, it is important for you to grieve, but as Paul says in First Thessalonians, but as one with hope, to understand that there is amazing hope within God, but that doesn't diminish the pain that you're incurring when you've lost a loved one, when you've lost someone that you really care about, and to allow you to wrestle through some of the more difficult questions, especially when someone is... Um, dies at such a, such a young age. Usually if they die from such a, uh, at such a young age, there was something else at play there. Uh, it's not like someone dying at 90 from something really understandable. Someone dying so young, usually there was something else at play. They were murdered, they committed suicide, something like that, or that they... Accidents. Yeah. Accidents, overdose, something like that. Something uh, out of the norm occurred to them, and so you're going to have to wrestle with that increased amount of uh, struggle and issue when it comes to grieving this person's loss. So uh, allow yourself to grieve, allow yourself to mourn. Uh, if you, if it was a classmate, I'm sure this person had friends and family that also cared about them and loved them. Try to associate with them a lot more. Be a part of their grieving process and allow them to be a part of yours. That would be very helpful for you in getting through this because they know exactly what you're going through. They're, they've lost this person as well. And sometimes it can be just very helpful. I remember uh, attending the funeral of my uncle and just spending time with uh, my cousins and my aunt, and we would just talk about his life. We would talk about stories. It can really help the grieving process to be around people that love this person just as much as you did. Um, after you process these things, if there are still questions in your mind about why would God do this, uh, I would encourage you to, while you're hurting, to try to let these questions go because you're just not in the state to be able to adequately wrestle with them. They're just gonna cause more pain and unnecessary sorrow inside of your mind and in your faith. But after the grieving process has gone on for a little bit and these questions still remain, it could be good to have conversations with friends or loved ones about it. Man, like, why do you think God would take someone so young? And uh, like I just alluded to earlier on in the uh, in the, the rhetoric lesson, we were talking about the juxtaposition between an all-loving and all-powerful God allowing for pain and suffering. We don't actually have a very clear and definitive answer within the scriptures. All we really know about God is that God is good, that God is all-powerful, and therefore we have to conclude that there must be a good reason behind why he would allow particular amounts of suffering to occur. And our ultimate reasoning for that is the cross, right? That God did not uh, prevent himself from undergoing pain and suffering, but he allowed it to happen to him, and he did it for a reason. 
that gives us purpose for understanding that there must be reason, there must be meaning behind everything we're suffering. And Paul uses that as a jumping off point in 2 Corinthians 4 to say that definitively. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, For this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal way of glory. For we do not look at the things which are seen, for the things that are seen are tr- uh, transient or temporary, but we look at the things that are not seen, for the things that are not seen are eternal. So he is making a, a reasoned argument that I know and I believe that there is a reason behind what I'm going through. This temporary suffering will have some sort of an eternal consolation and purpose. Do I know what it is? No. That's why he says, don't look at the things that are seen. Right? He's very clearly saying, I don't see why this is happening to me, but I look at the things that are unseen. I buy by faith I accept and I believe that God is in the unseen, that he is eternal, and he does have a purpose for it. So John 11, you got Mary's and you've got Martha's. Mary needed Jesus to weep with her. Martha needed answers from Jesus. Two different kinds of people, both in the same situation. Minister to them accordingly, and I think you'll do fine. And for those listening, uh, please pray for Caden as well as for uh, the individual who's uh, life, unfortunately, was taken. Jonathan, pray for him and his family as well. Uh, here's a question from the elder who wants to know, in light of our topic, the either-or fallacy. Is John 14 and verse 6 an either-or fallacy? Let me read it. Jesus said to him, this is speaking to Thomas, by the way, when he asked the question, we do not know where you are going. This is in reference to him leaving them in verse 1. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now here's the statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. So applying our test of an either-or fallacy, the suggestion is that there would be a third option, that you could get to heaven, you could go to the Father, apart from Jesus. Now, that's either true, or that's false, or there's another option. Now, again, bringing it to the actual either-or scenario. When Jesus made this statement, he was either telling the truth or he was lying. Now, that's something that the person who's making the claim needs to be held to, because that is an either-or. If Jesus was lying, then he's not the way to the Father at all. <laughs> this isn't a you know dilemma of an either-or. This is a fraud compared to some other better option. Since Christianity is invalidated, therefore another religion is true, or since Christianity is valid, this statement is true, and therefore anything other than that is false. But note, we jump from one maybe third option into an actual either-or option. Was Jesus lying, or was he telling the truth? If he's telling the truth, he is the only way to the Father. I look at his credentials and say, he resurrected from the dead to prove his claim. If he was lying, then he pulled off the biggest conspiracy and hoax in order to support a lie in all of history. What requires more faith to believe? That'd be my answer. No, that's good. All right, let us know if that helps. Um, another off-air question. Uh, pro-abortion celebrities have said God is in favor of abortion because he gave us free will and the ability to choose what is a biblical response. Boy, that's a uh, problem. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> what's wrong with that? Kind of an interesting—so I know that this is not the point that we're making, but again, I'm going to steel man their argumentation a little bit. Yeah. So I could see someone making this argumentation from a libertarian perspective to say, well, you know, God didn't 
didn't restrict our behaviors, right? So God didn't see fit to say to man, you can't, uh, essentially like, you can't do this and I'm going to enforce you not doing this. So for instance, when Cain was about to kill Abel, it was within God's purview to stop him from doing that. There's, and then yeah, there's virtue in preserving the right to make a mistake. That's right. Not um, according to this phrasing, God approves of a mistake. That's right. And in fact, all virtue stems from our capacity for free will. If you're not free to make a decision, then that decision can't, by definition, be virtuous or evil. So if someone puts a gun to your head and says, give this person $50,000 in charity, even though you just did that, that's not a charitable action anymore. That's a preservation of life. You really didn't have any other option other than take the bullet to the head. So or if a machine does something, it's not a good machine. That's what right. it's supposed to do. That's what it's programmed to do. So choice is the is the very foundation of all types of virtue. So someone could make the argument, well, if God doesn't elect to exercise that authority in his own power, what right do, does man have to enforce our way of thinking on other men? So this would be kind of actually more of an anarchist view, right? yeah. that, there's, that there is no such thing as government, that the government should not interfere in the will of man at all. Now, unfortunately, I know a lot of these celebrities are not anarchists and they're not liberty, <laughs> libertarians. So Somewhat totalitarian, actually. Yeah, they're a little bit uh, more totalitarian. So they're, they're definitely in a lo uh, logical fallacy here. And some people have kind of pointed out this way, where you're like, well, you say my body, my choice when it comes to abortion, but then when it comes to, say, vaccination, you don't believe that same way anymore. So the idea there is to show that there's a, a flaw in their logic that, okay, if you're going to take the kind of anarchist libertarian argument, well, at least you're being consistent. We could talk about that, about why does man have the authority and the right to, to politically challenge and to politically punish other men for making wrong ethical decisions, right? So and we can talk about that and recognize that. So, uh, you know, we can go through the Bible and God's establishment of government and God allowing for governments to, again, punish other men and why God says to Noah, if man sheds man's blood, by man his blood must be shed. That means that God is saying, I won't do that, right? I will not do that. That would be kind of nice if you committed a crime and God just like struck you with lightning and that was it. God to Noah is basically saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm giving you the right and authority to judge other men for their crimes. So that's the establishment of government and the allowance of government to penalize their fellow citizens through the power and authority that God has granted to them. So if I was actually talking to a libertarian or an anarchist, I would, again, give them points and kudos for saying, well, well you're being very logically consistent, but let me explain to you why mankind does have the right to do this and why government is important. And I might also go to Romans 13. But because I am not dealing with people like that, I would have to just point out that there's a flaw in their logic, that you cannot hold to these two points at the same time. You cannot say, well, I am a Christian, God created man, and God gives man the ability to make mistakes, so therefore man should have the ability to make mistakes, and government can't tell a woman what to do with her body. Okay, do you follow that in all other areas of life? What if a woman decided to murder her two-year-old? Would you think that the government is right in stopping her or in penalizing her if she makes that decision? If you say yes to that point, then you're saying, well, then you don't believe in total liberty. You don't believe in someone's right to choose no matter what. You do believe that there are limitations. Well, how about, and let's just keep it in this realm, because most people who support pro-choice values don't actually support abortion up until the 40th week. So you say, okay, so you agree with choice, but you wouldn't agree with the choice of a woman to do this at the 40th week. Why not? Why are you removing her choice in the 40th week, but you're preserving it in, say, the 12th week? 
where's your where's your standard there so you could just try to show the person they're not being logically consistent so since the point the, the it's a very bad argument since the argument doesn't really point out any like actual view of is abortion in and of itself a morally reprehensible thing is just looking at the law of liberty uh that would be the way i would answer it yeah freedom of choice <laughs> isn't freedom from consequence we acknowledge the value of choice but we don't diminish the severity of consequences one doesn't eliminate the other let us know if that's clear and to the off-air one who asked it uh God be with you. Um, speaking of interesting, challenging questions, here's a question from Mac who wants to know, and this is, again, I'm sure follow through on other conversations he's been having. Why was Leviticus so harsh when it came to capital punishment and killing, as well as sexual ethics and laws? He was asked this. Or in Matthew 10, when it says he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Uh, which one do you want to deal with, Old or New Testament? Dealer's choice. Shrug. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll find a quarter later. Why don't I turn to Matthew 10? Actually, you know what? Let's first turn to Leviticus 19. All right. So I'll That'll take Matthew important. 10. <laughs> yeah. So uh, go to the New Testament. Obviously, when people bring up, you know, the God of the Old Testament's harsh and the God of the uh, New Testament so gentle and loving, obviously this is a interesting uh, little, I guess, cross-comparison. I find a passage that basically describes violence or enacts a law that I don't agree with. And therefore, these are either morally reprehensible or just not held in favor by me. On the other hand, when people would quote something that seems violent, and probably the most common one, is Jesus himself said, red letters, uh, bring those who would not have me as king over them and slay them before me. They'll leave out the fact that this is, of course, a illustrative story, a parable, where he is describing a king, not himself, returning from his country, and that the only long-term application is the end times. And if you're not a Christian, that will never happen, so this doesn't apply to anyone. You can't conclude that Christianity is violent. But the question and concern on this is, again, Leviticus was so harsh. Well, let's start with the word Leviticus. Leviticus means to the Levites. The Levites were one of the twelve tribes of Israel, the descendants of Levi, uh, the third-born son, I believe, or fourth, of uh, Jacob and uh, Rachel, no, Leah. And uh, what was interesting about him was he wasn't given any land in Israel. He was going to be the tribe through which the priests would fill and populate the entirety of the nation of Israel. They would be the legal representatives as much as the spiritual ones, because they were a theocracy, where God rules. So to the Levites, they're being given legal instructions. If anyone is going to be told, this is a capital offense, this is not, they would be the ones to hear about it. That's why Leviticus seems so, quote-unquote, harsh because it's a legal document. But when people are asking, you know, why is it that this is just oh so chock full of violence and ethics and so forth? Well, apart from the overall principle, this is usually uh, something that's not oft quoted from the book of Leviticus. Obviously, we have recaps of the Ten Commandments. We have reminders of the penalties thereof of rejecting those laws. But uh, here's a passage that's quoted pretty much like a beating drum in the New Testament from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And when we see this put in application to the New Testament, what's the whole point of emphasis? That love, loving your neighbor as yourself, is the fulfillment of the entire law. 
when we look at the law and we see these restrictions being put on Israel in very strict ways, uh, Peter, you've welcomed, or I guess are about to welcome your second, but you have a little girl right now. When her, I guess, uh, social restrictions and so forth are put on paper, seems very restrictive compared to the ones that my father puts on me. Why is that? Uh, well, you know, she's not old enough to figure this out, but <laughs> obviously uh, because she's a female then and because she's young, there would be certain aspects where I'd have to look at her capacity to make good decisions and uh, as well as her strength in being able to defend herself. So in this situation, she's young, she's vulnerable, she doesn't have a lot of ability to make decisions on her own. Is that similarly where Israel is at, not as a biological people, but as a nation state? Have they had their own legal system yet? Obviously not. They had just come out from centuries of indentured servitude to the Egyptians that eventually descended into chattel slavery. The point being made is this. When you have a infant, they're going to have a lot more different rules than if they're a teenager and that when they're, excuse me, when they are an adult. If we understand that and how God is speaking to the nation, the sort of restrictions he's placing on them were the sort of things they needed to be aware of, not just in regards to biological relationships, but in regards to taking seriously things that led to a lot of hurt for not only them later on, but the nations before them that they were taking over. Compromise and sexuality is just one of those things. But if you say, well, Leviticus is so harsh, Leviticus is where we got love your neighbor as yourself. So either something's not being taken in total context, like we talked about, or things are being, I guess, uh, picked out piecemeal and who it's applying to. Because again, is this saying, go out and find anyone who's not sexually moral and exterminate them? No, this is to the nation of Israel, the people who had these ethics and knew better, not to hold them to nations outside of them unless they came in willingly. Is that somewhat a similar example, not considering the audience and the impact thereof, in the New Testament when Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword? Uh, Yeah, no, it's actually completely different. So um, I'm going to go through the passage and then I'll explain why it's completely different. So in Matthew chapter 10, I I think the reason why someone would use this against you, Mac, it would be to say like, well, you know, Jesus was just as violent as the Old Testament. I think it was Reza Aslan who wrote a pretty terrible and atrocious book with his uh, creative writing degree, (laughs) not a a historian in any uh, any stretch of the imagination. But at any rate, he wrote a book called Zealot in which he argued that Jesus was uh, basically of the Zealot class. And he was a terrorist who uh, was persecuting people and encouraging violent uprising against the Romans. And that essentially after he was crucified, his disciples whitewashed all of his sayings so they wouldn't get in trouble with the powers that be. Uh, It's a terrible book. There's not a lot of good scholarship in it, but that was kind of the point that he was making. And he honed in on this section. Right, so he's saying, well, some of Jesus's words were preserved, so we can see that you see he was calling for violence and he was calling for a bloody uprising and that kind of thing. So, what does the verse actually say? Matthew chapter ten, verse thirty-four: Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And people are like, bam, see, Jesus came to bring a sword. He was a violent revolutionary. Well, you got to keep reading. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who the civil war? Uh, Yeah, well, first of all, it's kind of uh, family members attacking one another. But the question is, 
is Jesus asking his followers to attack their family members, or is he warning them that family members will attack them because they believe in Jesus? Well, let's keep reading. We got to keep reading. Uh, verse 37, he who is uh, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So still, it could be either one. Verse 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Notice he doesn't say, he who does not take his sword and follow after me. He who takes his cross. The cross was the execution element, uh, implement of that day. So what he's saying to his followers is, you got to carry your cross. Your, uh, your opposition against the powers that be in your fellow countrymen is going to result not in their death, but your death. That's what he is warning them about. So once again, if I want to read this, this passage as Jesus encouraging people to violent revolution, number one, I would have to explain why he says take up your cross and not take up your sword. But number two, I would have to also explain why none of the early Christians did that. Right? So why did none of the early Christians fight in a bloody revolution? And why didn't they attack their fellow Jews or their fellow countrymen? And the reason why is because they did read all of what Jesus said, and they understood what he was asking them to do. Not to kill for him, but to die for him. So it's all an issue in application. If we look historically at the outright genocide and hunting down the homosexual or the incestuous individual, it doesn't exist. If, on the other hand, we look at Jesus's violent revolutions where he took the sword up against families, it doesn't exist. So we need to read more than one passage and understand if the verse not only in question, but also the verses surrounding these violent passages set a very different tone than what you're presenting, then maybe this is being misrepresented. If you're talking to someone, though, who's either already made up their mind about this and says, well, I don't like the Bible, therefore violence is just going to be my pet uh, objection for the day, give them space and just say, well, that's interesting because I don't take it that way. And you can give them the opportunity to say, well, how and why do you take it differently? It clearly says to be violent. If, on the other hand, they instigate the question and say, oh, so that was a legal situation? Oh, that was speaking of persecution? That's going to be far more productive than just the you're wrong, because they're probably not listening anyway. Let us know if that helps you out, Mac, but uh, interesting topics to be sure. This confuses me, but we'll address it anyway. Um, Yari wants to know, is it true that the law of prayer is the highest law in the universe? Is that why the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray? Prayer gives them more power. They could have asked Jesus, teach us anything, but they specifically asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Okay, I think that's probably coming from a prosperity background. Power of prayer. So the idea of what prayer is, maybe? Right. So let's do that. So I could take that. So by the way, this this whole idea that uh, prayer is the highest law in the universe, that's not in Scripture anywhere. Uh, But people from the Word of Faith movement, as well as some prosperity movements, would say things like that, and do say things like that. Why? Because in their mind, prayer is the way in which you get all sorts of power from God. So by uh, praying, and by the way, their version of prayer is not asking God for things, but demanding God of things through his promises that he has made to them. So you'll never hear someone who is genuinely in the Word of Faith movement ever pray, not as I will, but as you will. They will always, this is 
where it comes from, name it and claim it. They will pull out verses that God has made promises to them. They will take them as universal, and they will say, God, because you have made this promise, I expect you to do this for me. You you promised us that we will be the head and not the tail, the lender and not the borrower. So therefore, God, make me rich, make me wealthy, make me someone who is lending and not borrowing. That would be the application there. And so because of that, they would consider prayer to be the highest law in the universe, because that literally is how you get all power and authority from God. That is not what prayer is, though. So it is a very large misapplication of Scripture. Prayer is not the highest law in the universe. The highest law in the universe is God, right? God embodies the law, the ethical law, the moral law, as well as the logical law, right? God is going to do what God wants to do. So we see in Scripture, uh, Jesus is the ultimate example of what prayer is supposed to be. He is our example for how we are to relate to God. What we see is that Jesus doesn't utilize prayer to get things from God. As a matter of fact, we very rarely see Jesus ask for anything from God. Very often in his prayers, he simply is communing with God. So there are various times throughout the New Testament that we don't even have his prayers recorded for us. We just have Jesus go off into the middle of the wilderness or onto a mountaintop and spend long times praying with his Father. Uh, he often does this as a type of reprieve or a, a way of consoling himself, So, let's say, for instance, after the death of John the Baptist. So we do see Jesus utilizing prayer as a means of simply communing with God and spending time with his Father. That's also what we see throughout the majority of the Old Testament, when you see prayers recorded for us in the book of Psalms, uh, as well as ver various prayers by the prophets. You very rarely see people ask God for things, and even when they do ask God for things, it's only a tiny little segment of their prayer. The majority of the prayer is spent, say, uh, being in awe and admiration of God in His presence. Uh, talking about his glory and his majesty, or expressing various types of uh, struggles that they're going through to God, talking about their anxiety, talking about their depression or their anger, and asking God for help in dealing with these things and orienting themselves towards God's plans and not their own. Beyond that, when people do ask God for things, they usually do follow up by talking about God's wisdom and performing for them what they need as opposed to what they want. Classic example of this is in Proverbs chapter 30, where King Agur actually says, Lord, neither give me riches nor poverty, for if I become too rich, I will forget you and curse your name, but if I become too poor, I will steal from you and abominate your name. So you have an instance where Agur knows, only God knows what's best for me, so therefore I'm giving my will to him. Jesus, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays that God would deliver him from the cross, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Prayer is not a time to control God or to get him to do what you want. Prayer is a time to supplicate God. This was an ancient practice where you would bring your desires to a king, but allow the king to use their power, authority, and the wisdom to make the right decision on your behalf. So that's what prayer is supposed to do, and that's what, how we see people practicing it. So it is a far cry from the way that people in the prosperity movement treat prayer. They misquote a lot of passages, and if you have specific ones that you want us to talk about, we will, but I hope that helps. All right, and then as a follow-through on that, speaking of prayer, um, Isaiah wants to know in regards to Jesus's model prayer, lead us not into temptation. What temptation was that? He had a pastor uh, ask the Holy Spirit for the answer, and then the Holy Spirit apparently spoke to him and said, it's the temptation not to pray. Would there be a challenge to this, or maybe his approach and method of, uh, I guess, including the Spirit and speaking on his behalf? Anything like that? Uh, yeah, so 
First Thessalonians 5, we quote that often, do not despise prophecy, but test all things. There's no reason to believe that that's what Jesus meant. Uh, if it's something that he did mean, why didn't he just say that, right? Uh, that would be very easy. The prayer that he gives throughout the gospel accounts is very, very short. Adding an le- extra line to it wouldn't be too arduous for him. Beyond that, no other Christians throughout world history have ever read it that way, so that would be another reason for me to reject it. And uh, I don't really have a reason to believe that God would specifically speak to this person and give him this really incredible scriptural reference that he has given to no one else throughout human history. It seems a little odd. But beyond that, when you read through the Lord's Prayer, everything in the Lord's Prayer is incredibly generalized. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Which trespass? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) What are we forgiving them of? What trespass are we committing? Jesus doesn't answer that because it's meant to be taken in generalizations. Whatever trespasses that you are struggling with or fell to, that's what you're confessing. Whatever trespasses other people are leveling against you, that's what you're seeking forgiveness for. Um, If you're talking about lead us not into temptation, what temptation? Whatever temptations are afflicting you, whatever temptations you're struggling with, that's what you're praying for. All right, and then uh, we'll finish with this. Claudia had a question about Isaiah 22, 25, and wants to know if it was referring to Eliakim or Shebna. Uh, obviously, it's a longer conversation, but the commentaries are differing. Uh, how can she figure something like this out? Yeah, it's definitely one that requires a complete reading of the history to follow the trend. That's why Isaiah is after the time of the kings. Uh, in short, let me again just summarize this. Shebna was a corrupt politician, uh, represented of the king's treasury, but he was uh, uh, fishing for some extra money for his private sepulcher, his, uh, I guess, tombs and so forth, a lot of luxury items. And God was saying that you're going to be replaced, this is in, again, verse 20, by a guy named Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who is going to do his job well. But for some reason, as you stated in verse 25, it says, after in verse 22, that he would be fastened as a peg in a secure place, that in verse 25 it says, in that day. What day is important? Uh, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Now, obviously, in this very complimentary uh, uplifting of Eliakim as a worthy man of character to uphold this office. Why is it that a term used immediately prior, like two verses prior, to describe him being secured in that place, him being removed and cut off from that office? Well, the point is then taken in two directions. Either he's being judged, or he's in the midst of a judgment, and the office is what's going to be removed. And that's the more appropriate position. Because remember, when Israel was taken into captivity in Babylon, they don't have need of a treasurer of a deposed government. Uh, Eliakim and his descendants wouldn't have any other, I guess, treasuries to look after until they came back, and even then it would be for the house of David, which wouldn't return until the time of Messiah. If you want to read more commentaries on this, though, understand, as our friend Levi Lesko says, some taters are more common than others. But the point being made would be that it is referencing Eliakim, but not in judgment of him, judgment of the nation, and of course, his job in government that no longer exists also goes bye-bye. So, uh, unfortunate reality, but note, he still has his reward before God, and so will we. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry 
at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.